1 Thessalonians if you want to read along in your own word of God. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. I am Pastor Brendan. Most of you know me. If not, now you do. Um, no PowerPoint for us today. That is my shortcoming. But if you are looking down at your lap for the um, sermon following along in your own Bibles, I will take that as a sign of grand respect and attention. Um, we are in First Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 through 511. A lot of pages in this thing. All right. <laughs> Let's read. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left up until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so, this day shouldn't, um, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and the promises it gives us. We ask that you are with us today as we engage in it, that you open it up to our hearts and open up our hearts to what you have to say. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, 1 Thessalonians might be the oldest book in the New Testament, uh, probably Paul's first letter probably written before the Gospels were themselves transcribed, were written down and circulated. And the reason for that is that most Christians at the time uh, were of the opinion that when Jesus said, I'll be coming back, they thought he meant sort of later that afternoon or a couple of years later in the most. And you can't blame them for thinking that because the scripture they had, the scriptures they had, Old um, Testament prophecies, forecast the coming Messiah they told of him suffering and him reigning forever as king on the throne of David. But they failed to disclose the 2,000 plus years that would elapse between the suffering and the reigning. Gospel writers didn't feel immediately compelled to set down and commit the story of their ministry and of Jesus' life to paper because they thought the world was going to be over pretty soon. Um, and the oral message would have been enough, but they were convicted too and eventually they did. But 
if you follow Paul's letters, not in the order they're presented in the Bible, but in the order they seem to be written in, you can sort of sense the way that Paul changes his own expectations about how soon Jesus will return. And now the problem the Thessalonians were having is that they knew Jesus had the power to save them, and they knew that he was coming back. They just didn't quite know how to deal exactly with those two things as facts in their lives. Should they be afraid that when he comes back that they'll be swept up in the wrath of God they know is coming on the world in which they are resting? If that's the case, then they should be panicking and trying to do something about it. Or should they be assured that he's coming back so soon that they can just sort of, in the meantime, chill? Forget the bills, quit the job, sit around eating ice cream until he returns. Is it that soon? Um, what's the right response for a believer knowing Christ is going to return? And what about those who die before he returns? Do they miss out, having just missed by that much, to be there when Christ returned to call his children home? Ultimately, this is a passage about reassurance for believers who are so fixated on what is going to come that they forget to operate in the godliest fashion in the day in which they actually live. Because God is yesterday, today, and forever. But the only time that we are capable of acting for the good of the kingdom or that we are liable to act against it in sin is today, the day in which we live. Now, in today's reading, we have sort of two main threads the end of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5. The end of chapter 4 is a question about those believers who have died, and the, um, the start of chapter 5 is about how living believers should be thinking about the day of the Lord coming and how they should be living in light of that. So let's walk through this passage again, starting with those verses 13 through 15. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So these guys know that Jesus is coming back, um, and that for a sinful world, there is going to be hell to pay. And they're afraid that if Jesus is coming back and their loved ones have, been, uh, have recently departed, have died recently, that those loved ones might miss out on Jesus coming back. They haven't grasped completely this idea of resurrection. They haven't nailed down their understanding of the resurrection yet. They're living faithfully expecting a glorious kingdom, but they think they'll have to walk into it on their own two feet because the dead are dead and the dead can't do anything. So they grieve for their loved ones who won't see the kingdom. And Paul uses this euphemism about those who have fallen asleep in him. And it seems with that he's doing sort of two things. One, he's reminding the people that death, like sleep for a believer, is something they can be reasonably assured they will wake from and therefore don't need to fear quite as others do. And two, it's possible he's just sort of being sensitive about the topic of death. Just like we do, we talk about how someone we know passed away or went to be with the Lord or is just gone. We do that mostly because we know when we say that someone we love is dead, it has a horrible finality to it that makes our skin crawl and opens up the old wounds of letting them go. And these Thessalonians, they're a church, they're a tight-knit family. Um, they're suffering at that time persecutions, both from the, the pagans in the city in which they live, but mostly from the Jewish community that's reacting very badly to the challenge of this 
faction of Christians who are rising to oppose the Pharisees' teaching. They've lost people. They've lost people to persecution. And so Paul says, they're asleep in Christ, but they'll wake up. And when they do wake up, they'll have the honor of entering the presence of Jesus Christ before the living do. Paul says, we that are still alive, see he includes himself there because at this stage he's fairly confident he'll still be alive and kicking at the time that Jesus returns. We that are still alive will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Not only are they going to rise up to see the kingdom, they'll see it before the living. We know that because Jesus demonstrated his power to overcome death in his own death and resurrection. And Paul paints a glorious picture for them of that moment. Verses 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive will be left, and our left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, every time I hit this passage, particularly, I think I might have talked on it about three years ago here. I have to go for this little sidetrack because I like it so much. But if you're the kind of person who, um, when your friendly neighborhood uh, Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, if you would like to invite them in and listen to what they have to say, you might find this interesting. One of the beliefs that the Jehovah's Witnesses have, the Watchtower Society, is that Jesus Christ isn't actually God. He's Michael the Archangel. Um, an angel made incarnate by the power of God, therefore sort of godlike in power, but not the creator God. And this is one of the verses they'll commonly point to. They said, the Lord will come down from heaven and with a loud command and the voice of an archangel. And they say, therefore, if the Lord speaks with the voice of an archangel, then he's an archangel. It's an interesting idea. But if you read the rest of the verse, it's, he comes with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And if coming with the voice of the archangel means he's an archangel, coming with the trumpet call of God means he's God. So there you go, a little bit of extra apologetics for you. Keep that in your back pocket. <laughs> but Paul paints a picture of this glorious moment with the highest angels, this sort of angelic chorus heralding the coming of the risen sun and the new king. It's the moment that creation has been groaning for for thousands of years. The king has finally come to put things right. And the first thing he does to put things right is he calls the saints who have fallen asleep back to life. They rise from death and they rise upwards in this image too into the sky where the glory of heaven is sort of hanging low, preparing to be burst into the world again. And only then will the living be called to join that holy horde. Therefore, the Thessalonians shouldn't mourn. They shouldn't uh, have no hope for their loved ones who have passed, but they should be consoled that they will be together with them in the presence of God in the future. So when is he going to come? And what are we supposed to do about it? What are we supposed to do until then? Paul goes on in chapter 5 and doesn't completely answer that question about when is it going to come. Rather, he reminds them that they don't really get to know. But he does answer the question about how to live in the light of knowing that Jesus is coming back. At the start of chapter 5, he says this, the first three verses. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly 
as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. This is a picture of how it will be for those who don't know Christ and therefore don't anticipate his coming. It's kind of uh, the image and then the negative image. The day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. It's going to seem like some scumbag thief is creeping up on the world in the dark to attack them. That's how sudden and shocking that event will be. But um, it's actually not some thief. It's actually the king of all creation. And it's not actually the night which conceals things and is shocking and terrifying to be attacked in. It's actually the day when all things are revealed and glorious. It's not a thief in the night. It's the day of the Lord. The day is when everything is made clear. It's, it gives you power to move freely in the world again because you can see again. It opens up things and takes away fear. But to those who reject God, who are ignorant of what this coming means, who reject his call to be saved, the revelation of this truth is so sudden and foreign to them, it's like nightfall. They don't know what's happening, they don't know where they are, and they have no chance to resist. Not so for the children of God, verses 4 to 6. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that that day should surprise you like a thief. You're all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Now, now we hit one of the parts of the Bible that is not... At the risk of being pelted with fruit is certainly written confusingly. Um... <laughs> It's certainly, it's this use of the word sleep, okay? Now, I like going off on Greek sidetracks. I promised I wouldn't this time. But there are two different words for sleep used for, um, for sleep in the Greek in this passage. And they're both translated as sleep. One of them is a metaphor for death, where they say, oh, he's gone to sleep, but they'll come back again later. Um, the other is a metaphor for like laziness sleep. It's like dozing on the job. And he kind of, Paul sort of switches to one, then to the other, and then back again. So you have to do a little bit of work to track it as you go through. Otherwise, you're like, why, 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 why are these guys dead? Why? Um, so we're going to be aware of that as we go through. Now, Paul says, we're children of the light and of the day. To us, the day of the Lord isn't scary. It's not a threat. It's the day of the Lord. It's like the sun coming up and opening up the world to us again. It's the thing we're waiting for, and we should regard the fact that Jesus is coming not with fear or laziness. We shouldn't be sleepwalking through life with no joy or purpose, not knowing where it's going. Verses 7 to 9. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are belonging to the day, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is that sleep of, of uh, laziness, of sleeping when we shouldn't sleep, of drowsing through something that should be a wakeful event. The unbeliever has, well, almost no other option. They can't see what the world is meant for. They can't see where it's going. They are asleep in that sense. The believer has no excuse to be that kind of spiritually lazy. Or to put it another way, the fact that we don't know the day or the hour that Jesus will return does not give us license to live as if he will never return. There is work to do. There are things he wants us to accomplish while we live. 
We have to live well. We have to cultivate virtue in ourselves and in our families. We have to be better and better at forgiving. We have to spread the gospel of salvation. We have to live like if Jesus turned up right now, we wouldn't have to make an effort to look busy. We're not in spiritual nighttime where you sleep or party. We're in the spiritual daytime where you've got to do what you've got to do, and you might have to just go and do it. And you'd fight what you need to fight for that matter. And Paul uses this armor of God language, which will later flesh out when he writes Ephesians. He talks about um, the armor of God, in this case, being a breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Faith, hope, and love is those three primary Christian virtues that Paul will later mention again in Corinthians. But here it's a simple one-verse blessing. It's faith to remember who they serve, love to demonstrate that service to each other in their daily actions, and hope of salvation that transcends the earthly trials, the things they'll be going through while they wait. The hope and the knowledge that they will stand joyfully in the presence of the God who knows their struggle with all those who have come before them. And Paul finishes with verses 10 and 11 here. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. Now, Paul's using that first sleep again, the sleep of death. Um, it holds no power over believers because when Christ returns, the living and the dead, both faithful, will all be swept up into his keeping. The Thessalonians and Paul probably couldn't have imagined that there would be 2,000 years plus worth of faithful believers rising from the dead and merely one generation who will live to see the coming of Christ. But then the world was much bigger than they could imagine. God's plan for the world much grander and his patience with fallen man much greater still. In any case, their task is simple. Remember your eternal destiny for those others around you who love God as well. Love them as you would love God. Live in that love and that hope and that faith. Live this life in open-eyed encouragement to one another. So that's our passage. In summary, the Thessalonians are preoccupied, or they were preoccupied with the fear of death and um, deaths causing them perhaps to miss the coming of the Lord. Paul tells them not to fear death, but also not to fall idle in the assurance the Lord will come. They're to live as children of the light, going about their business in the light of the fact that Christ will come again and not to fall spiritually asleep waiting. But what does this mean for us? Because our relationship with the time of Jesus' expected return is probably the opposite of the Thessalonians. And if we have a problem, it's not so much that we anticipate it coming too soon, it's maybe that we don't think about it at all. Sure, there's the odd Christian who just has just recently read through Revelation and a couple of books about it, and they'll speculate wildly about what it all means in great excitement. Maybe the mark of the beast is the credit card or an Apple watch. Um, the beast itself is Russia or America or the Soviet Union. But ultimately, even these guys are just giving it their best guess. Every few years, there's a handful of doomsayers who believe they've got the numbers figured out, and they'll go and they'll sit on a particular plateau waiting for Jesus to come when the world ends and then it won't end, and then they'll walk off awkwardly after making some excuse to themselves about their faulty math. Maybe the world will end in the year 2000. Does anyone remember that? <laughs> the old Y2K, it's going to shut down the computers. It'll set off all the nuclear weapons. Didn't happen. 
We had the Mayan calendar fiasco back in 2012. They don't know and they don't cope well when people who expected the end of the world end up with more time on their hands than they thought they had. But honestly, for most of us, we don't really think that much about the end of the world. We know at some theological level that it's destined to wrap up someday, but in practice, well, this planet is a sturdy old gal. She's gotten us this far. And as much as we know theologically and intellectually that we're looking forward to the day that Christ returns and he blows that great full-time whistle once and for all, I don't know many Christians who are restless or anxious for that day to come. I'm certainly pleased by the idea that we'll be closer to God, but I kind of like it here. This stuff I want to see, and this is God's creation, and I'm not ashamed to be fascinated by the world in which we presently live and the, the history of the fallen people who occupy it and their desperate struggle to know God and the tragic way that they keep fleeing from him. I don't know a single Christian who gets out of bed in the morning and then throws open the curtains and upon seeing that there is no rising host of the glorious dead, throws his arms up in frustration and goes about his day in a foul mood because Jesus still isn't here. I don't think it's possible to live like that. It's a crummy world in some ways, but we try and be thankful for every day we get here and we're sad when people leave it. So maybe we're not like the Thessalonians in that regard. Maybe our trouble is not that we're so ready for the end game that we can't see past two feet in front of our face. Maybe our 21st century trouble is that we're so comfortable with the abstract idea that Jesus will come again, that it features nothing in our life whatsoever or very little. We grow up, or rather we can grow up. We can grow up, get married, have kids, save for retirement, cruise around the world twice, spoil our grandchildren, die happy, and then be buried in the family plot with a couple of books and a reading lamp because they've still got time to kill. There's no going back to the state of believers shortly after Christ left the world in that excited confusion, wondering if each day would be the one. But he is coming back. And one day it will be over. And it might be in our lifetime. So maybe there's a way to live wisely, knowing that to be true without obsessing about it and without treating it as distant or irrelevant. Maybe our lives are supposed to be about cultivating those things that have eternal value that will persist after that day. A Christ-like character, the hearts of disciples, and that these things need to be folded into the fabric of our everyday life. Immediately before the passage we read today, Paul is giving his instructions to the Thessalonians on how to live, having rightly placed the return of the Lord in their hearts. And it's somewhat surprising to hear in its mildness. That's from verses 4 to 10. Oh, sorry, chapter 4, verses 10 through 12 in chapter 4. Yeah. Paul says this, We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. It's a very curiously practical injunction. Live a quiet life, minding one's own business, work with your hands, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. It's very Protestant in its way. To simply live, to make ourselves useful for the people around us and to do it in such a way that people see our diligence, they see the way we live, 
as people of God, and they see it as worthy of respect. Why does that matter? Well, obviously, because respect leads to a foundation for relationship and trust, and then God willing the addition of souls to that coming kingdom. There's a way to live that's oriented towards the truth that this world belongs to the Lord, and one day he will come to claim it for good. And it's a good life, and it's mostly a quiet life. It has the kind of stability in its routine that allows us to absorb the shocks and losses that come with this broken world every now and then. It exists in concert with many others in a community like this who can add their strength to one another in encouragement and generosity so that no task is too big for them and no challenge too much for them to cope with. It's a life armored in faith and love and the hope of salvation so that it stands strong under trial and that the world can marvel at people living that kind of life and respect them and wonder how they can do it. And they can ask, how is it that you can live so peacefully and respectfully in a world where you have to sweat for your food and dreams rarely come true and you will never have most of the things you want and where anyone that you love can and often will be taken away from you one day. And that the humble saint can say, because I am living in that world, but not for that world. I'm living for the day when this world passes away and the Lord Jesus takes everyone who has faith in him to live in the next one. I don't sleepwalk through this life like it has no purpose. I'm not afraid of death because I know where I'm going. I'm not anxious in this life because I know what life is for. I have love for God and the people around me, faith in the God above me, and the unbreakable Christ-verified hope that they will come together in the future and I'll be there to see it. That's the kind of life that Christ died for us to have. It's available to anyone who is willing to admit that stumbling around in the dark with no purpose or truth is no way to live and who repents and turns to live God's way. And when you look at your life, do you see the life of a person armored against the troubles of the world with faith and hope and love? A life that has a plain direction to it, towards the godly, towards being a wakeful, eyes-open child of God in the day. If the answer is no, then you have a duty to work towards a state where you can say yes. And if the answer is yes, you have a duty to work towards a state where you can say yes quicker. So let's ask God, who knows us and the life he has planned for us, how we can better serve him. So that when we go to God, or he comes to us, we can say, Lord, I lived my life for this moment. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for life for this life with all its troubles and the next life which you have promised us and purchased for us with the blood of your son. We look forward to that next life with anticipation and joy and we need your help in this one to live in preparation for the next. Show us by your Holy Spirit what we are doing that is unfitting for a child of God to do in their life. Are we failing to love somewhere we should? Is our faith weaker than it could be? Do we chart the course of our life without considering our hope of salvation? We ask, Father, for your conviction for each heart in this room that you would place there one thing that we can do in each of our lives 
a day-to-day adjustment that would make it more pleasing to you, more glorifying to you among the people who see us live. Help us, Father. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.